Well, welcome to the uh, Ralph Miliband Lecture. My name is uh, William Callahan. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department, which is in this fine building. And I'd like to welcome you to the first lecture, which is given by Isabel Hilton. And the topic will be From Empire to Republic, China's Struggle with Modernity. Um, Isabel is very, she has been studying China and learning about China and writing about China for quite a long time. Um, and she's done a lot of things. She's, I guess, what I would call a, a public intellectual because she um, is engaging with a very broad audience. I think we'll see that today. And she's very, I think she's quite influential. She's been a journalist for a long time. She writes columns, uh, opinion columns for The Guardian that are always very interesting. Um, right now, she's the founding editor of China Dialogue, which is probably the foremost place to go to see what's going on in China, especially in terms of the environment. And it, it, I think initially it was about the environmentalism, but uh, it spread into politics and culture and economics. And it seems, I mean, it, it's very much a genuine dialogue because um, the posts are translated into English and Chinese, so it's set up a real conversation, which is quite rare. Um, so I think we should congratulate her on that. And this isn't the first kind of big project she's done. She was also the editor-in-chief of um, Open Democracy, a, a blog site that publishes just uh, lots of interesting political commentary. Um, but I don't actually want to spend time singing her praises. You can tell she's very renowned. And I, I guess I'll just pass it right off to you. And uh, please tell us what's about From Empire to Republic. Thank you very much, Bill. I'm going to, um, I'm going to stand up, if that's okay. And um, thank you all for coming. It's really a tremendous honor always to be at the LSE. It's a particular honor um, to be asked to give a Ralph Miliband uh, memorial lecture, one of the more, most distinguished uh, intellectuals of, of this institution and, and, and of his time. Um, I've been asked to talk about the question of borders, um, and uh, of course that's uh, what they mean and uh, who belongs inside them. Um, it's a recurring question. It's a recurring question in this country, of course, uh, rather disgracefully raised about Miliband himself by a section of opinion who seems to think that belonging for the many implies exclusion for the few. Um, but it's also a highly pertinent in, uh, question in China. Um, China has, uh, there are the external borders of China, um, and China has 14 borders, uh, 14 external borders. Um, some of them not agreed, like the Arunachal Pradesh and the Aksai Ching uh, border dispute with India. Some of them actively contested recently. Um, the Sino-Indian border dispute broke into war in 1962. There was the Yasuri River incident with uh, the USSR and the Cultural Revolution. But on the whole, these are not particularly live issues. Um, unlike the maritime borders, of course, the East and the South China Seas, which are in active contention, uh, the status of Taiwan, which is, I'm sure, familiar to everyone and stable at present. So I don't intend to discuss the external borders um, specifically. Uh, China also has some territorial claims, Outer Mongolia, for instance, um, which are related to what I will discuss, but I don't intend uh, particularly to elaborate on those. What I do want to talk about tonight is the crisis within borders. Um, 
the current borders of China. And, and these borders, which are historical, but also contested from within, and how that relates to the Chinese idea of the state and the nation, what does it mean to be Chinese, what belonging means, what constitutes citizenship, who sets the rules, and what are the degrees of inclusion or exclusion within the formal rules. And these are extremely live issues in China, and in some cases, particularly in Xinjiang and Tibet, they're the source, the source of very long-running but also now acute conflict. And, and I will try to persuade you that to understand the nature of this conflict, we need to understand the difficulties that China has in its long transition from empire to nation-state. Now, China might argue that these are internal matters and nobody's business, but China also makes it our business very directly. Um, I'm sure we all recall the unbounded joy with which the British Prime Minister uh, led a large trade delegation to China at the end of 2013. Um, and the, the joy was down to the end of a long diplomatic freeze that Britain had been in with China um, after David Cameron's meeting with the exiled Tibetan spiritual leader, the 14th Dalai Lama, in St. Paul's Cathedral in 2012. Now, there are a lot of other questions we could ask about the Cameron trip, um, but the one that concerns us here is why David Cameron's meeting with one of the world's spiritual leaders held in a religious, not a state setting, should have occasioned such a diplomatic upset in the first place. Now, on the Chinese side of the argument, this seems completely obvious. Um, I, I was at a media forum uh, recently between Chinese and, uh, and British uh, media executives and journalists, um, and the chief editor of the Global Times, which is the uh, mouthpiece of muscular nationalism in China, rather refreshingly broke the polite ice with a fierce attack on the British media for failing to condemn uh, the meeting uh, between Cameron and the Dalai Lama. And the Chinese government, of course, accuses the Dalai Lama of uh, seeking independence for Tibet, but that has not actually been his position for many years. But for the Global Times and for that strand of opinion, meeting the Dalai Lama implies endorsement of his political aims, despite the fact that, in fact, the UK government uh, does not advocate any change in China's current borders. So we might also argue that uh, David Cameron has the right to meet with whom he chooses in the sovereign territory of Great Britain. But if we accept China's right to protest about a British leader uh, uh, meeting the Dalai Lama, what should we think about a Chinese leader meeting a politician who does advocate separatism in the UK context? Isn't that also a diplomatic offence? So the First Minister of Scotland, Alex Salmond, unlike the Dalai Lama, openly advocates the independence of his national entity, which is a key part of the United Kingdom, I speak as a Scot, and has moreover set and trained uh, a political process which is designed to meet that ambition. And in fact, there have been many such meetings. The Scottish splittist, to borrow a phrase that um, the Chinese like to use, has been to China four times since 2007. Li Keqiang, now the Chinese Premier, has visited Scotland twice. Uh, and more, moreover, he's, um, he's bestowed on this would-be separatist uh, administration a great mark of favour in the loan of two giant pandas to Edinburgh Zoo, uh, from where regular, if so far unfounded, uh, reports of pregnancy have been uh, issued to tremendous uh, excitement in the media. Um, so symbolism is very important in these exchanges. And we all remember, I'm sure, the diplomatic disaster of this particular symbol. Uh, this was David Cameron in November 2010 visiting China. Now, November, as, as we all know, is 
the month of, uh, of national memorial of, of the, the First World War in particular, um, when uh, wearing a poppy is absolutely de rigueur for British politicians. However, in China, the poppy means something different. Poppy equals opium equals opium war. And so for David Cameron to wear a poppy in China you know, caused tremendous outrage in the Global Times amongst others. So symbols do matter in diplomacy. So what do we make of this? Um, Li Keqiang appears to have adopted a key Scottish symbol, a tartan tie. <laughs> and he's openly, brazenly wearing it. So there was another little twist to this encounter. Scotland and China um, struck a deal for the export of large quantities of Scottish farmed salmon to China. Um, this, in fact, carries very high risk to the Scottish marine environment um, and the wild fish stocks. And this may be the first instance of China exporting its pollution to the United Kingdom after many years of traffic in the other direction. So Alex Salmond, of course, was keen to sell fish. He was as keen as David Cameron was to sell pig semen on his recent trip to China. So, Because for the first minister to build Scotland's trade links with a big emerging market does strengthen his argument that an independent Scotland is economically viable. Lee Ka-chang was no less keen, but for slightly different reasons. Ever since the uh, 2010 Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to the imprisoned public intellectual Liu Xiaobo, China has been seeking ways to punish Norway. Despite strenuous Norwegian assurance that the Nobel Peace Committee is not the Norwegian government, um, and it's certainly not the Norwegian fish producers, but that didn't stop Norwegian fish being a particular target of Chinese official outrage. And Norwegian salmon found itself subject to long delays and finally an outright ban. So Li Keqiang's visit offered a happy resolution for everyone except perhaps uh, Scotland's marine ecologists and the Norwegians. But as it turned out, the Norwegians were happy too. Why? Because 90% of Scottish farmed salmon is produced by companies in Scotland that are owned by Norway. So Norwegian producers are still exporting to China via Scotland. The Chinese have their salmon. Alex Salmon can walk tall as a trusted partner of Li Keqiang. So it's just a little lesson in some of the illusions that we attach to notions of national interest. But why does the UK government not react with similar displeasure to Li Keqiang's meetings with Alex Salmond? After all, the Dalai Lama rejects Tibetan independence. He asks for meaningful autonomy under the present Chinese constitution, whereas Alex Salmond has worked all his political life to break up the United Kingdom. So if one meeting with the Dalai Lama is worth 18 months in the freezer, could we say three meetings with Alex Salmond add up to four and a half years, perhaps with a reduction for appropriate contrition and remorse? And we might throw in ban on exports of Downton Abbey to China just to get attention. Well, it's no more absurd than the opinion that you will readily encounter in Beijing in well-informed circles that were the Scots to vote for independence, the English tanks would roll north of the border to put a stop to the nonsense, like some latter-day version of General Wade's pacification of the Highlands after after 1745. Now, personally, I think this is unlikely, but in Beijing, to many people, it looks like an absolute certainty. David Cameron, we hope, subscribes to the view that if it is the settled will of the Scottish people, as the late John Smith might have put it, to seek their nation's political fortunes in some other arrangement than the present multinational state of the United Kingdom, then so be it. That is their right. In China, separating from the existing state uh, is seen as an act of treason. 
Now, the wide gulf between these two radically different perceptions is also the gulf in understanding of what it means both to belong to a state or a nation and to whom that state or nation really belongs. So who is allowed to determine its size, its shape, its constituent parts? And these are questions that go back to the beginnings of post-imperial China, and they continue to affect China today very profoundly. So at the end of the Qing dynasty, just over 100 years ago, 1911, um, it came about almost by accident with the discovery of a plot amongst some military officers in Wuhan that forced the conspirators' hand. It was a little premature, it was certainly a little chaotic, but it succeeded largely because the Qing dynasty was so riddled with rot that the desire for change was so widespread and it didn't take a lot to push it over. So Sun Yat-sen, I said it was a little chaotic. It was so chaotic that the man who'd actually worked for years to bring exactly this moment about missed it. He was on a fundraising uh, tour in the, United, in the United States, and he actually learned about it from the U.S. Uh, the US press uh, and had to rush back home. But despite these slightly comic elements, the 1911 revolution was fundamentally different from previous regime changes in China because it brought around 2,000 years of imperial rule to an end. And it posed the question, if not empire, then what? What was the new China? Who would be part of it? Who was Chinese and who was not? So for Sun Yat-sen, the Qing imperial household were foreigners, And many of the revolutionaries characterized their rebellion as the overthrow of a hated foreign occupation. The revolution itself, in those circumstances, was actually a pretty civilized affair. Um, Certainly by the standards of what came later, the, the imperial family were not shot in a cellar. They were not hanged from the gate of heavenly peace. They stayed for some considerable time inside the forbidden city, in the imperial palace, with a stipend from the Chinese treasury and with the official status of resident foreign dignitaries. So with the last emperor politically neutralized, what were the ideas that replaced the Confucian system, which was widely regarded at the time not just as a failure, but as the cause of China's failure? So in the China of 1912, science and democracy, technology, political modernization, these were the new ideas that were pressed into service with the aim of restoring China to its former strength. Now, the Confucian system saw successive Chinese empires as the center of civilization, and the barbarian status of less civilized neighbors uh, was measured in part by their distance from the center. Barbarians could become civilized, even accepted as rulers of China, provided they assimilated Confucian philosophy and governance. So in 1911, a new formula was needed, a new standards by which to define Chinese-ness, and and it wasn't easy. So China set out on this post-imperial journey with a long tradition um, of statecraft, but ideas that were unfamiliar and difficult to execute. Without an emperor as the focus of political and national identity, what would bind China together? Now, today we tend to view China as a nation with a long history, as a single cultural entity. But that's not always how it seemed. There have been moments when it looked more like Europe as the Roman Empire faded away, revealing a palimpsest of peoples, languages, and cultures which are related to each other but different. 
The European elites for a while would continue to understand, speak and read Latin, but they would identify with diverse cultures, tribal groups across different homelands, across different cultures. The raw material for any number of nation states in the future, depending on whether they sought to stress their distinctiveness or their commonality. And in Europe, redrawing the map accounted for some 2,000 years of intermittent warfare. Now, without pushing this analogy too far, there are moments um, and, indeed, some striking parallels. Both are self-defined continents with many common but not identical cultures that have found themselves within variable borders throughout history. And there have been many attempts in Europe, after all, to recreate the, uh, the Roman Empire, and, and some would argue that the European Union is, uh, is the latest uh, modern version. And China's maps also um, have been pretty, pretty constantly redrawn throughout history. In Beijing today, we're told that Manchuria, like Mongolia, Tibet, and Xinjiang, have always been part of China. That same Manchuria that was the homeland of the hated foreign Qing Dynasty, So the hated foreigners of the 19th century are today's Chinese, and always have been in the official view. So always turns out to be rather an elastic term. Uh, It doesn't really mean throughout recorded history. It's more of a political term meaning, in the modern context, uh, unchallengeable. But back in 1912, at the beginning of the remaking of China as a modern state, there were still other possible choices. Had Puyi, the child emperor uh, of the Qing dynasty, the last emperor, had he returned to Manchuria in 1912, the occupation by Manchuria of, uh, of Manchuria by Japan might have evoked a different set of responses. It might have invoked sympathy instead of the opprobrium uh, with which the client state of Manchuguo, uh, with the emperor as its head, was regarded. And perhaps with the defeat of Japan in 1945, Manchuria would have become an independent, resource-rich North Asian country, preserving its language and culture, both now almost extinct. Today, Manchu identity has all but vanished, and today's masters of China insist that Manchuria was always part of China. But as a Manchurian friend of mine likes to say, from the Manchu perspective, invading China was in some ways a big mistake. If Manchuria had reconstituted itself then, what about other parts of the Manchu Empire? Might they, too, have gone their separate ways? Well, Mongolia and Tibet did, in fact, declare independence a few years after the 1911 revolution. And in Xinjiang, there were efforts to form East Turkestan. It all seems very unlikely now. But was it so unlikely then, given China's history? Today, it's the founding uh, premise of Chinese exceptionalism that China has lived within the same borders for 2,000 years. But the maps tell a very different story. Whatever it is that sanctifies China's borders, it isn't history. So we can start as far back as recorded history, the warring states, feudal tribes, uh, the Qin dynasty, if you like, the kind of political ancestor of today's China, uh, who managed to unify the uh, warring tribes, Uh, But as you see, the dynasties that followed were neither all united and certainly not all uh, geographically in the same same space. The Tang dynasty, uh, the the Tang were a northern people and they managed to extend their empire uh, westwards, as you see, had their uh, capital uh, to the west. Uh, It breaks up again. It goes on changing. Here we come to the Mongols, the Yuan dynasty. The reason this is so big 
is that the Mongols were, of course, at the time a global empire. But note that they still didn't include Xinjiang within their borders. In fact, the Mongols did rule Xinjiang, but they ruled them from Kashgar, not, uh, not from Beijing. So no successor state there. When we go back to the next dynasty, which is a Chinese dynasty, the borders go back to the traditional heartland of the Han, uh, of the Han people. Uh, and all of the West and the North is doing something quite different. But here we come to something that looks more like the map of China today, and this is uh, the Qing Dynasty, the Manchus, and again, a northern non-Han people who had uh, conquered lands to the north and the west and brought them in uh, to China when they, uh, when they regarded, um, when, they, when they became uh, emperors of China. So a reversion to that map, this is Again, the heartland of, um, of Han China. Under the Ming Dynasty, other things were going on uh, over that uh, uh, other areas. Um, a reversion to that map was not implausible. It was not even unlikely. After all, this is the most familiar marker of that border between Han China and other peoples. So the border between settled civilizations and nomads, between pastoralists and rice growers. And this was, it's been variously interpreted um, either as a forward position or a defensive structure, but whatever it is, that is the border between traditional Chinese culture uh, and the rest. Um, It was a border fortification. Now it's in the middle of the country. Something has changed. So as China's reformers and revolutionaries grappled with the question of a new political form, they also had to grapple with the people inside the wall. In many ways, they were an easier proposition. They spoke a kind of version of the same language, though any Mandarin speaker even today who has struggled to understand a native Cantonese is going to feel a bit like an English speaker watching Borgen or The Bridge, uh, rather in need of subtitles, except for the occasional flash of recognition of a word or phrase. And that remains true in China, except for the critical difference of the non-alphabetic written language. That had been brutally standardized by the first emperor of the Qin dynasty, who buried alive the scholars who dissented so literate Chinese could communicate in writing with each other when they couldn't understand each other's speech. And this was possibly Qin Shi Huangdi's most important (coughs) legacy since it helped create a common cultural framework such as Europe might have had to stretch the comparison again uh, through Latin had it remained in currency. But the written language did not in itself create loyalty to the still novel idea of a nation especially since in its form as a state instrument it was unintelligible outside the elite. So if you'd asked people in 1911 who they were, a man might have answered that he was a Hunan Ren from Hunan or from Guangdong. He might have answered that he was Manzu, Manchurian. He might have invoked a historical imperial term and associated himself with the past uh, dynasty from his region. But the term Zhongguo, the Middle Kingdom, was not really in common use as a definition of identity. And Chinese reformers from the late Qing dynasty onwards all wrestled with the question of identity and belonging. 
Many of them drew on uh, Western theories, social Darwinism and 19th century European racial theories, which had, frankly, unfortunate results for their theory. Um, Frank de Cotter, the Dutch scholar, in an essay on ethnicity and race, points to the myth of common ancestry of the Yellow Emperor, in which Chineseness is seen to be primarily a matter of biological descent, physical appearance, and congenital inheritance. So cultural features, like Chinese civilization or Confucianism, are then thought to be the product of that imagined biological group. They're secondary features that can be changed, they can be reformed, even eradicated. So a Confucian scholar, a socialist carder, a Hunanese peasant, or a Hong Kong entrepreneur will always be Chinese by virtue of blood, according to uh, uh, 19th century theorists. But with the end of empire and the arrival of the Western idea of nationhood, Chinese intellectuals grappled with racial theories, myths of origin, ideologies of blood, and conceptions of racial hierarchy and ethnic identities in the Chinese context. So Kang Youwei, for instance, the great Qing dynasty reformer, um, had, a, had a hierarchy of races in which, you won't be surprised, he placed the white and the yellow races at the top of his ladder of civilization. And he described the Africans in terms which are far too offensive to be repeated here. He even proposed a medal for those white or yellow people who were prepared uh, to improve the African racial stock by marrying into it in the name of the greater good of humanity. For those who couldn't marry, he advocated sterilization. So the notions of race were very much in currency at the time. And Sun Yat-sen, to go back to Sun Yat-sen, in his famous... Um, oh, that's Jin Shuangdi. That's Sun Yat-sen. Um, in his famous Three uh, Principles of the People, wrote of Chinese identity that the greatest force is common blood. The Chinese belong to the yellow race because they come from the bloodstock of the yellow race. The blood of ancestors is transmitted by heredity down through the race, making blood kinship a powerful force. Now, that might have served for the Ming dynasty, but it didn't fit within the wider borders of the Qing. So Sun Yat-sen... dealt with this by dividing the population within the wider borders into five major ethnic groups. His successor, Chiang Kai-shek, leader of the nationalists, uh, the Kuomintang, the Nationalist Party, when in government, took the very robust view that all other nationalities within the borders should be taught Chinese and assimilated, leaving no room for discussion of political autonomy or independence. In fact, the only serious consideration of a reversion to the earlier map came, surprisingly, in view of what happened later from the nationalist enemies, the Chinese Communist Party, who sought their inspiration for the uh, uh, minorities issue in the nationalities policy of the Soviet Union. And in 1931, the constitution of the Jiangxi Soviet Uh, of which Mao Zedong was prime minister, set out the absolute right of self-determination of ethnic minorities, including the right to separate entirely from the Chinese state and establish independent countries. Of course, in 1949, when the CCP won the Civil War and set up the People's Republic, that thought had disappeared, and no later constitution included it, although all, on paper, have guaranteed autonomy, for the non-Han. So 
Mao Zedong's other answer to the question of identity that earlier reformers and revolutionaries had wrestled with was that they were irrelevant. He argued that the nationalities question was a class question, not an ethnic one. And the mission of the Communist Party was to liberate the minorities from the oppression of their native rulers and bring them under the socialist umbrella. The nation state, after all, would eventually uh, wither away. And his recipe for uniting the historic territories of the Qing Empire was the totalizing ideology of millenarian socialism. The methods, over time, had a lot in common with Qin Shi Huangdi, in fact. But in the beginning, the Communist Party's ethnic policies, minus the right to independence, remained quite close to the Soviet model with the creation of a system of autonomous areas for recognized minority peoples, which were to be administered in both the minority language and in Chinese. When this process was in train, more than 500 ethnic groups applied for recognition. Uh, The Chinese Communist Party whittled this down um, to 54, 55, um, and that was a total of around 45 million people. Um, That's roughly the breakdown of the linguistic groups. Um, The Han population at the time was around 900 million. Um, The uh, 45 million were to be given autonomy within the state at various administrative levels depending on their concentrations. So internal borders were also redrawn, notably that of Tibet. So why did Mao abandon the right to independence for larger nationalities? Well, there were many factors, including national security and the fact that, as Mao himself noted, the minorities have few people, but they have a great deal of territory. And that territory contains the richest mineral and timber deposits and nearly all of China's meat and wool-producing areas. So the Tibetan population, for instance, at some 6 million people today, is 0.4% of China's population. But the Tibetan homelands, historically, cover 2.5 million square kilometers, which is equivalent to most of Western Europe, and about a quarter of China's landmass, with 3,000 kilometers of external borders and the origins of the nine major rivers of Asia. This is no inconsiderable prize. The largest nationality in terms of numbers were the Zhuang, of whom we hear very little, around 10 million of them, and the Hui, uh, who are indistinguishable from the Han, except for the fact that they're Muslim, and neither has made any claim of independence. So those most visible to us today are the Mongolians, the Tibetans, the 13 Turkic Muslim peoples of Xinjiang, of whom the largest are the Uyghurs, but also includes Kazakhs, uh, Kyrgyz, Tajik, uh, Uzbek, and Tatar nationalities. And they have repeatedly contested their status within a China that itself has repeatedly changed the terms of the relationship as the party state itself went through its own political convulsions. So in the first 30 years of communist rule, the initial promises to respect and protect minority cultural and political rights, which were important to the communists at first as a marker of difference with the Kuomintang, these progressively broke down as increasingly radical socialism gained ground. And there were limits even in the beginning. In theory, there's no reason, for instance, in Marxist doctrine why a Tibetan should not set up a communist party. Uh, And indeed, one particular Tibetan tried repeatedly to set up a communist party, Baba Punzok Wangyal, and he ended up uh, serving one of the longest uh, sentences in solitary confinement in history. Um, So... 
Not only was, you know, there was, a, 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 there was no theoretical reason why uh, there shouldn't be a Tibetan Communist Party, uh, but the reasons why it couldn't happen uh, go back to China's relationship um, uh, with its minority uh, cultures. So under Mao's direction, all the older identities and loyalties uh, came to be seen as rival poles of attraction to the Communist Party, and they had to be eliminated in favor of submission to the party and to its uh, vision of a socialist utopia. To be Chinese at this point, whether Han or Uyghur, meant being an obedient and patriotic socialist. Part of a socialist system that was superior to all others, as the Confucian system had been, but with a higher price, of course, for the individuals. Not everybody could belong. Mao famously said that 5% of the population were enemies of socialism. The other 95%, whatever their ethnic background, could belong as long as they surrendered other loyalties completely. The 5%, the class enemies, could never belong. They were a necessary enemy to be eliminated, persecuted, a necessary part uh, of, of building the nation. So the price was high for all individuals. But for the non-Han population, it was particularly high because they had strong cultural and religious ties of their own. Mongolians had a cult of Genghis Khan, Buddhism in Tibet, Islam in Xinjiang. All of these had to be destroyed in the first 30 years of the regime as threats to the, to the Communist Party's claim to be the sole source of meaning. And by 1962, so even before the Cultural Revolution, 90% of Tibet's religious buildings had been destroyed and its religious leader, the Dalai Lama, had been in exile uh, for more than two years. Now, the imposition of millenarian socialism on China's periphery was itself fiercely resisted. The Tibetans attempted armed resistance between 1956 and 1959. After 1959, they, they were part of a U.S.-sponsored uh, guerrilla movement up to 1974 when the U.S. Uh, re-established uh, relations with China and American support ended. So since then, we've had recurring and widespread protests, but the balance of violence since 1974 has very much been on the side of the state. In Xinjiang, too, there have been repeated violent episodes, but also, as many scholars have noted, there is a covert daily resistance in the, the, the refusal of people to consider themselves Chinese. Some chose exile rather than submission. In the most dramatic case, 60,000 Kazakhs fled to the Soviet Union uh, in the course of the Cultural Revolution. So... This changed with Mao's death, of course, in 1976, and China enters a new phase of nation-building shaped by Deng Xiaoping's economic reforms, opening up China to the world, launching a vast modernization program that has transformed China's internal position and has also changed life inside China even more. So the first decade, from 1979 to 1989, was an extraordinary, transformative decade of ideas. The party relaxed its ideological grip, and, and old ideas that had been long suppressed rose again to the surface. This was the period that produced, among other things, a modern version of the self-questioning that had been a uh, marked uh, feature of intellectual life in the second part of the 19th century, in the shape of the Yellow River Elegy, which was a long television series that examined China's history in an attempt to answer the question, what is wrong with China? This question repeatedly posed by Chinese thinkers in the last 150 years. 
The exploration of the past, which was impossible under Mao, was also an attempt to return to the question of what China was and how being Chinese could be expressed in a modern polity once the carapace of communist ideology had fractured. So by the end of the 80s, the ideas in circulation at the beginning of the century had returned in the heart of the Chinese state in the shape of the democracy movement in Tiananmen Square. On China's troubled periphery, older ideas of identity and political destiny had also begun to reappear. Now, 1989, of course, was an extraordinary year all around the world, and no less so in China. And when we think of it, we tend to think of June the 4th, the day the tanks rolled in to crush the student occupation of Tiananmen Square. But China's 1989 began with trouble in Tibet. Hu Yaobang, the general secretary of the party from 1982 to 1987, had in fact played a critical role in both. Whoops, that's not Hu Yaobang, I beg your pardon. That's Hu Yaobang. So Hu Yaobang's death, of course, was, was the spark, the trigger for the student movement in Beijing. In Tibet, 1989 would be seen as one of the outcomes of a reversal of Tibet policy that Hu Yaobang had ordered in 1981. He had visited Tibet and he'd been appalled by what he found, a shattered landscape, ruined temples, ruined monasteries and a a desperate and impoverished people. And he apologized to Tibetans for what had been inflicted on them. And he ordered the withdrawal of 85% of Han officials from Tibet to allow Tibetans to run their own affairs and ordered the, uh, the remaining Han to learn Tibetan. He argued for an increase of state funds, improvements in education, efforts to revive Tibetan culture, and he tried to limit the rule of the center by saying that anything that was not suited to Tibet's conditions should be rejected or modified. He also opened negotiations for the return of the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama responded by agreeing to send three missions to Tibet to report back on conditions there. But to the dismay of the Chinese administration in Tibet, which had assured Beijing that Dalai Lama was a discredited and largely forgotten figure in the new socialist Tibet, the first delegation to arrive evoked an overwhelming public response. Thousands of people turned out to see them. Letters were shoved in their pockets. Petitions to the Dalai Lama uh, to save them uh, were carried back to Dharamsala. This happened again with the second visit, which was then cut short, and the third uh, was cancelled. So by 1984, the limits of that policy were evident, and policy began to harden again, which led to further trouble in Tibet In 1987, a series of pro-independence protests which hardened policy even further, and it mutated into a continuing series of punitive campaigns against pro-independence activists. Now, in February 1989 in Lhasa, as in Beijing that year, it was the death of a reformer that set events in train. So the ninth uh, Panchen Lama, he's also called the 11th... I won't go into the archaic question of numbering Panchen Lamas here. Um, The ninth Panchen Lama is the second most important figure in the Gelugpa school of Tibetan Buddhism. Same school as the Dalai Lama. Um, And the two historically have had a close relationship. Um, He died unexpectedly at the age of 51 uh, of a heart attack while on a visit to his home monastery in Shigatse, Tashi Lumpur Monastery. Now, in the 50s, the Chinese government had tried to use uh, the Panchen Lama as a substitute for the Dalai Lama, 
Um, And after the Dalai Lama went into exile in 1959, the road seemed clear. But the Ninth Panchen had also proved problematic for Beijing. In the course of the Great Leap Forward, he wrote a long petition, a 70,000-character petition to Zhou Enlai, uh, detailing the mass starvation that the Great Leap Forward had produced amongst Tibetans and begging him to reverse the policy. This, of course, got him into trouble. In the Cultural Revolution, he was again persecuted, and he also languished in prison until the death of Mao. Then he was released, and he'd worked to rebuild his country. His death, therefore, sparked off public protest against the renewed hardening of Chinese policy. And Hu Jintao, later to be General Secretary, of course, of the party himself, but then Party Secretary of of the Tibet Autonomous Region, declared martial law. The first time martial law was declared uh, in the People's Republic of China. So the era of political reform died in Lhasa, just as it was to die three months later on June the 4th in Tiananmen. Democracy was dead. What next? Well, it wasn't a trivial question. The party had united China around a promise of socialism that was dead on June the 4th. Economic policy would take a very different direction. But how would the party explain itself if it was no longer the guiding light of Marxism-Leninism, Mao Zedong thought, and could no longer assume that it could persuade the people that it always acted in their interests? So a different set of rewards was devised. Immediate material gain in the rapidly growing economy was substituted for the promise of socialism. And a new history, based on the story of historical grievance rather than the revolution, was devised to justify the party's continuing monopoly of power. And this said that China's weakness was the result of hostile foreign forces against which the party continued to be the nation's only effective defense. Unrest in Xinjiang and Tibet from now on would be linked to a story of continuing external hostility in China and should be conceived as an existential challenge, a core national interest that must be firmly dealt with. And today we are still seeing the results of that shift. So by 1994, this new policy in Tibet had hardened into grasping Tibet with both hands, rapid economic development combined with strict security controls on almost every aspect of Tibetan life, and a speeded-up integration through transport links and in-migration of Han Chinese. There was a wave of patriotic education across China implemented in the wake of 1989, which stressed historical grievances, brushed aside the party's own mistakes, and defined the national goals as winning international respect and recognition as a big power through rapid economic development. So to be Chinese at this point meant to be a patriot, to subscribe to the goal of national rejuvenation and to be rewarded with greater personal freedom to marry, to consume, to travel and to worship if you chose. And it worked for the Han. It didn't work for the Tibetans or the people of Xinjiang. The more China stressed its historical glory, the less room there was for other histories. So no longer even theoretically equal under socialism, they were now once again backward peoples in need of Han assistance to modernize and develop. Their own languages and cultures became an anachronism, an impediment to modernization, the terms of which, of course, were set in Chinese. 
There was one role for culture. Um, the Chinese authorities declared tourism one of the five pillar industries, and once the Qinghai-Tibet Railway opened in 2006, the number of tourists in Tibet soared from 44,000 a year in the late 1980s to more than 12 million in 2013. That's four tourists pretty much for every Tibetan in the TAR. At the same time, access to, to Tibet by foreign tourists was curtailed, which meant that the majority of the, the arrivals were uh, Chinese domestic tourists. And since Tibetan tourism operates, uh, operators mainly catered to the international tourist market, it, they increasingly struggled to survive, and the harvest uh, of this tourist boom uh, went to Han uh, tour operators. So Tibetan culture was permitted to survive as a component of this tourist industry. It's commodified but not lived. And even as commodities, cultural sites can be improved by having a makeover, traditional buildings demolished, rebuilt as pastiche. And in the course of this, their histories are also rewritten. Practice in religious centers is subordinate to the timetable of tourist groups. And at the same time, the Tibetan landscape, which has strong religious associations, has become the site of resource extraction, of mining. The rivers are eyed for energy-producing potential. Hundreds of thousands of nomads, in the name of modernity, um, have been settled, something that neither the Great Leap Forward nor the Cultural Revolution achieved, through a mixture of coercion and persuasion. Their way of life is incompatible with the rush to modernity or even the cash economy, but they have no other skills to offer, and the places in which they are settled offer uh, no uh, economic future. They're reservations with the familiar patterns of alcoholism and depression that characterize reservations elsewhere. But this is the state's last gamble. The, last, the, the rapid economic development would erase old loyalties, would achieve economic and therefore cultural assimilation. The cultural borders were to be broken down. And a common culture of economic prosperity would, of course, result. But the project of rapid modernization notoriously produces strong reactions. Uh, and China is no exception to this. So today... The official images of China's troubled regions divide into two main types. Images of happy abundance, uh, along with uh, glamorous tourist shots, um, and darker images. Darker images of of threat, of state response. And in 2008 and 2009, uh, these two contrasting narratives exploded. 2008, the year of the Beijing Olympics, the moment in which the state sought to showcase its achievements and to demonstrate to its people that it had made good on its promise to restore China to a position of respect in the world, a moment of high symbolism for the Chinese state story. There were problems, of course, the quality of Beijing's air being one of them. Uh, By then, it was among the worst in the world, though much worse today. But months before the grand opening ceremony of the Beijing Olympics, which began, we will recall, at 8 o'clock on the eighth day of the eighth month of 2008, in a state that frequently denounces superstition, came a much bigger challenge to the state narrative when a small demonstration by monks in Lhasa escalated into a major incident that spread rapidly across the Tibetan cultural space. Now, March is a highly resonant month in Tibet. It's traditionally the month of Mon Lam, the great prayer festival. And through the years, it's been the month of protest. And memories of those protests 
have also fed further protests. So in March 2008, the anger of the crowds in Lhasa turned into violence against Han migrants, and 19 Han Chinese were killed. So after the earlier incidents, in fact, the vast majority of demonstrations were not violent, but many did demand the return of the Dalai Lama, and there were sporadic calls for independence. The number of protesters shot dead by the security forces in the ensuing protests has been estimated conservatively at around 40, though some claim it's higher to 200. And in response to this unrest, the Chinese authorities deployed uh, paramilitary forces to Lhasa and to some eastern Tibetan areas, and they imposed a new set of restrictions on travel and communications and social life with fresh denunciation campaigns, political education drives, and large numbers of arrests uh, of dissenters. Scenes of violence against the Han, those early scenes in Lhasa, were rebroadcast dramatically and repeatedly on Chinese state television, and they aroused fear and indignation amongst the majority population. So in the next days and weeks, there were 150 protests across the plateau, most of them in eastern Tibetan areas, which is significant because those areas had been largely peaceful uh, for 30 years. Things were no better in Xinjiang the following year, after an ugly ethnic incident between migrant Uyghurs and Han Chinese in an industrial town in faraway Guangdong province. This sparked the worst intercommunal riots since the end of the Cultural Revolution back in Urumqi in Xinjiang. And the Urumqi riots in 2009 um, caused at least 194 deaths, uh, most of them Han Chinese. It could have been worse. Uh, In fact, this was an an occasion in which prompt intervention by paramilitary forces did prevent the escalation of revenge killings, um, and an important propaganda effort was mounted that stressed ethnic unity and blamed the riots on terrorists rather than on Uyghurs in general. This line has gained strength, of course, through its linkage to 9-11, and it was... Um, As it was, violence did continue through the summer of 2009, and Xinjiang remained completely disconnected from the Internet for the best part of a year. Now, the official explanation for both these episodes blamed influence beyond China's borders. In the case of Xinjiang, uh, Rabia Kadir, who's an exiled Uyghur, former business uh, woman, now lives in the States uh, and runs what, what's called the World Uyghur Congress. Um, they were accused of being behind the trouble in Xinjiang and, of course, the Dalai Lama for the riots in Tibet. But in the case of Tibet, another explanation was to emerge. In 2009, a group of lawyers at Peking University published the results of their own research into the causes of the Tibetan Troubles. And these were startlingly at odds with the official story, and they they pointed to a much more profound failing uh, of official policy. This group, known as Gongmeng, situated the cause of the trouble firmly back in China, finding that it was... um, Oh, sorry... (laughs) We seem to be on the um, Tibetan protest. These are excerpts from uh, from their findings. Um, They situate the trouble with Chinese policy, the state policy of rapid modernization that had made the economic, the cultural, and the social circumstances of most Tibetans worse, not better. 
Han Chinese, they found, monopolized the job opportunities that growth had created, as well as the petty commerce on the streets. In Tibet cities, the Han formed an elite that operated to Chinese rules, marginalizing Tibetans even further. And ever tighter political controls of the monasteries and the prohibition of photographs of the Dalai Lama deprived Tibetans of their cultural and religious anchors. So by 1989, they felt they'd lost more than they'd gained. And in the aftermath, they found themselves the objects of suspicion uh, and mistrust among the majority population. Now, both rebellions had profound effects on the attitudes of the majority population. Where previously Tibetans had uh, been regarded, um, they'd been bathed in a kind of romantic, if slightly patronizing light. They were seen as innocent, spiritually pure, if slightly careless of personal hygiene. Now they were seen as ungrateful. The Han had showered them with cash and opportunities, including a lower entry barrier for higher education, the right to have more than one child. It seemed very hard uh, for the Han to understand that Tibetans might prefer to be educated in their own language and decide for themselves how many children they wanted. From their perspective, Han Chinese had made personal sacrifices to go to Tibet to help Tibetans. And Tibetans had repaid this uh, majority kindness uh, with brutality. Now, the Uyghurs had never been seen as pure in heart, and the colonization of their resource-rich territory had been a paramilitary project since the 1950s. Xinjiang means new frontier, which slightly undermines the official insistence on always. Um, And in fact, Xinjiang was very rarely under Chinese control until the Qing conquest in 1745. Their national project, East Turkestan, looks west to the cultures, language, and religion they share with Turkic Central Asia, not East to China. And it wasn't until the PLA marched into Xinjiang in 1949 that the Han were there to stay. In the 50s, state colonization projects were run by the army. Xinjiang's role as a place to put political prisoners, to test atomic weapons, to extract oil. This ensured a steady increase in the Han population. And with economic liberalization, the numbers had soared as they did in Tibet. And today, Uyghur-Han ethnic relations are bitter. The Uyghurs see Han as invaders and exploiters, and in daily conversations, uh, derogatory references to Han Chinese are reported as completely routine. And as in Tibet, Uyghurs see the Han migrants as the real beneficiaries of the exploration of Xinjiang's oil and minerals while they suffer the environmental and the cultural impacts. Their traditional livelihoods destroyed. Uyghurs have also migrated to China's factories, uh, or you see them as street peddlers in Chinese cities where they face routine discrimination. In fact, hotels in central or east China won't accept Uyghur guests. Uh, So if Uyghurs travel, they have to resort to staying with friends or in illicit guest houses. And the images of violence in 2009 were also replayed on state media. And this confirmed their status, like the Tibetans, as the enemy within. This encourages the majority to view them with suspicion and with fear. So the decision to keep China's borders as they were in 1911, upheld by all of China's successor governments, has brought us to this unhappy place 100 years on. 
Since those riots, political repression has continued. Um, In October last year, uh, a Uyghur man drove a car into the heart of Tiananmen, where it exploded, killing its occupants, but also several bystanders. This was an act the Chinese government was to describe as an act of terror perpetrated by a religious extremist. In Tibet, things have taken an even more terrible turn. In March 2011, a series of self-immolations began, apparently in response to tighter restrictions on monasteries after the 2008 protests. And their impact, uh, the impact of these restrictions on the survival of Tibetan culture, language, and identity. So in the first wave, uh, 22 monks and nuns, mostly from Kirti Monastery in Ngawa, which is in Sichuan, died uh, in flames. The second wave began in February 2012 with lay Tibetans self-immolating, apparently in support of the monks and nuns. Twenty lay people and 13 uh, monks immolated themselves over eight months, and by October 2012, a third wave had begun, involving a second wave of monks who died in or near their monasteries. Um, In December 2012, when the Chinese authorities began a high-profile campaign against anyone accused of any kind of involvement, they criminalized any association with the act of uh, self-immolation. There were more arrests, collective punishments of villages and monasteries that the immolators had come from, and again the accusation that immolations were organized by exiles linked to the Dalai Lama. Despite this, they've continued. Uh, There are all kinds of people. Today, the total stands at 125. 19 of them were women. Um, 104 of them are known to have died. Uh, 24 of them were 18 or under. Uh, One woman uh, immolated herself in uh, Beijing, and six uh, further self-immolations have occurred in exile uh, by Tibetans. And again, according to exile reports, almost all these individuals called in their final words for the Dalai Lama to be allowed to return to Tibet. Most also call for freedom for Tibet, though the word independence uh, occurs relatively rarely. Some left written statements in which they stressed the importance of supporting the Dalai Lama and protecting Tibetan national, uh, religious, and language rights. Their messages speak, in other words, of identity and culture under threat, and they see the Dalai Lama as the guarantor of both. But these terrible acts speak to a deep despair, a willingness to endure unimaginable agony rather than to continue to experience the impacts of current policies. And unlike the cult of martyrdom in some branches of Islam, there is no religious reward for suicide in Buddhism, and no religious leader has encouraged self-immolation. But instead of addressing the grievances that these deaths illuminate, the state has characterized them also as acts of terror incited by the Dalai Lama and criminalized any activity related or that can be seen to be related, and this includes prior knowledge, uh, acts of condolence, attending funerals, uh, all all are uh, subject to state sanction. So the other state response uh, is that uh, police patrolling in Lhasa now carry fire extinguishers. Fire extinguishers are also uh, installed in Tiananmen. Suicide by self-immolation is defined as a crime against national security. 
So one perverse result from the point of view of the Chinese state of 60 years of occupation in both regions, but particularly in Tibet, is the creation of a sense of nationhood among Tibetans, which previously didn't exist. Tibetan loyalties were traditionally deployed to the local uh, religious leaders or to their uh, regions, um, to clan groups, but, and the Dalai Lama was not regarded by many, uh, by those particularly in eastern Tibet, was not regarded as their, uh, particularly as their political re- leader. Um, but the occupation of Tibet and subsequent policies has created this sense uh, of, of nationhood. And the prestige of the Dalai Lama, uh, also perversely from the Chinese state perspective, rises each time uh, he's taken uh, under attack. So if protest is construed as disloyalty or ingratitude to the state, we return to the central question of what is the China to which the loyalty and gratitude of its non-Han populations uh, are due. Each new leader of China is obliged to produce a new idea or slogan to encapsulate his larger vision, and party hacks across the country then labor to fit the leader's thoughts into the canon of Marxism-Leninism Mao Zedong thought, validating it and authenticating it as political scripture. This can sometimes be a bit of a stretch. Hu Jintao's slogan, for instance, was harmony, which is not the most salient idea in Marxist thinking. Um, Xi Jinping's slogan is in some ways no more tractable. It's the China dream, posed by some as a rival to the American dream, but definitely a dream with Chinese characteristics. The China dream is a dream of a nation rejuvenated, a preoccupation that, as we've seen, goes back at least two centuries and was particularly salient in the late 19th century in the form of the self-strengthening movement, one of many responses to China's relative weakness in the world. So who is entitled to share the dream? Well, clearly, China no longer feels or acts like a state intent on building socialism, no matter what its party rhetoric says. Today, the party boasts to its people of restoring China to its lost status as a big power. The people are spectators to the state's achievement. Confucius himself has made a tentative reappearance, and with him the imperial idea of the civilizational attraction of China. But Confucius is remote from the history and culture of China's more recently acquired citizens. Indeed, it was Confucianism that supported the historic distinction between civilization and barbarism. Today, as in earlier times, an invitation to be Chinese can look remarkably like assimilation. So where do we go from here? Well, a rewriting of China's borders is clearly not on the cards, even if there was a will to do it. China's now locked into a nationalist narrative that rests on the myth of immutable China, the always of current history. No leader, no matter how strong, could challenge that and expect to survive. But the deteriorating situation in both Xinjiang and Tibet is not just bad for those regions, it's bad for China. So what can be learned from this very unhappy story? And what room is there for a new policy? Well, on the surface, it doesn't look terribly hopeful. The party state's queasy relationship with its own history forces it into overly rigid narratives that leave entire decades and tens of millions of deaths unaccounted for. The relationship between the Communist Party's current policies and the founding texts of Marx and Leninism, Mao Zedong thought, is problematic, but it also seems impossible to discard. It's a faith that maintains its ritual practice and its priesthood, but it's been emptied of belief. 
So today we're seeing further economic reform, but so far this has been accompanied by an apparent reversion to an old-style politics, a mass line, rectification of thought, all in the name of the state-sponsored China dream. China has a constitution, but those who call for it to be respected risk detention. The party is in a full-blown anti-corruption drive, but citizens who call for officials to declare their personal assets are arrested. The language of political liberalism is in retreat, and in its place, a renewed attempt to encourage orthodoxy in a country that paradoxically is more open to individualism than probably at any time in its history. So the party can no longer impose belief or even trust on a wider public. And across China, people are defining for themselves what it means to be Chinese. But they have little power and few institutional pathways to influence the conduct or the nature of the state. And the state won't give them that power in case it leads to demands for other choices. But there are also signs that change is not impossible. Tibet policy, in fact, is fiercely debated in private. Current policies are widely seen as failed examples of policy capture by vested interests. And the government, because the government has defined the Tibet issue as a core national interest, little of this discussion can be public. Gongmeng, the lawyers' group that published that report on the 2008 riots, has since been disbanded, and many of the individuals associated with it now face their own difficulties. But occasionally there are signs that their analysis, at least, has not disappeared, that there is understanding that the primary factors behind Tibetan unrest today, including the immolations, are the excessively restrictive policies imposed by Beijing. And the widening gulf between the Han majority and its national minorities. So take this example. We hit the right slide. This uh, is taken from uh, a report from scholars at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, one of the most prestigious uh, academic institutions in China, in February 2012. The deficiency of trust in minority people by mainstream society, the vicious expansion of power awareness among public officials, fueled and promoted the loss of the sense of cultural justice, deficiency in mutual trust. There is only a way out for a multi-ethnic country face, uh, facing different minority groups, and that is the road of trust, solidarity, and cooperation. And it is absolutely unacceptable to deprive the minority groups of their right to speak. This sounds remarkably like the conclusions reached by Gong Meng. Not a matter of national security then, but a much more nuanced breakdown of trust exacerbated uh, by a heavy-handed state. So how far up the political tree does this understanding go? Well, Xi Jinping's, ascent, uh, Xi Jinping's ascent to power has been interesting to watch in this context for two reasons. One, he's proved extremely adept at seizing the reins of power and neutralizing the opposition, and he's shaping up to be the most powerful Chinese leader since Deng Xiaoping. Should he wish to, therefore, he could have the authority to change China's policy in Tibet. Might he wish to? 
Well, there was some speculation last year that he might uh, because of the coincidence of a personal connection with Tibet through his father, the late former Vice Premier Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping had written about his long-term friendship with the ninth Panchen Lama, the man whose death sparked the 1989 riots. And the elder Xi himself, of course, suffered the vicissitudes of inner party struggles, and his son may well have the background to question the current policy, as well as the political security, to change it. It's a very small window. Xi Jinping reportedly wore for many years a watch presented to him by the man now vilified by official propaganda, the 14th Dalai Lama. If Xi Jinping were to open talks with the Dalai Lama, or reopen talks rather, he would perhaps have the last opportunity to reach a settlement that Tibetans in exile and in Tibet would accept it would have to involve important concessions on the Chinese side, but it would not involve any change to China's borders or China's constitution, both of which are accepted by the Dalai Lama. If Xi Jinping were to seize this moment, while the Dalai Lama is still alive, he could transform the currently grim realities, both for Tibetans and for Han Chinese. It would involve dropping the fiction that the argument is about independence, a fiction that is used to prevent negotiation on the real issues and the causes of the current troubles. It would also demand agreement on how to construct meaningful autonomy and an end to the policies that have marginalized Tibetans. It would also be helpful in this context if Beijing were not to insist on their claim of always. Surely being part of China now ought to be enough. There would be many benefits to China. A successful settlement in Tibet might open the, possi- the possibility that Xinjiang too could come to a better relationship with the center. It would remove the perpetual stain on China's international reputation. The sight of citizens burning themselves to death is not a great advertisement for any nation. And for those who worry about the direction that Chinese nationalism has taken since 1989, and particularly since 2008, it would offer a reassurance that China's claim not to be a threat in the region had some substance. At present, China's vocal nationalists are given to talking both of external threats, the United States, Japan, of historical grievances that must be addressed, and now of enemies within, terrorists in Xinjiang, splitters in Tibet, and to define all manners of legitimate grievances as threats to the integrity of the state. Previous experience of such configurations does not inspire confidence. China's nation-building remains a work in progress. Over the decades, it's taken many forms and many different approaches, but today it's at another crossroads, and never has the definition of who belongs to the nation and to whom does the nation belong been more urgent or more important. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you. Um, We have time for some questions uh, until about 8 o'clock. So does anyone just raise your hand? Uh, It's right here. Do we have... Okay, wait for the microphone. Is the microphone on? Okay. 
Thank you. That was a really good lecture. Um, my question would be about, I think, perhaps something you're alluding to as well, is that I believe there is a certain type of word in China used, I can't quite remember it, but it's to refer to almost um, a disintegration of society where essentially they fear the whole Chinese society will essentially disintegrate around itself as it has done in the past and that, that fear perpetuates itself within the Chinese yeah. government affecting certain policies. Um, I, I couldn't hear you terribly well, but you were talking about national security imperative in terms of holding China together. Yes, there's a certain, I think there's a word as well that um, a lot of... Um, the Chaos, Ch Luan, yes. that one, yeah. Well, you know, um, sorry, on Yes. I mean, the fear of, of Luan, of chaos, is an absolutely you know, central uh, fear. And, and if you look at China's history, of course, in between dynasties, there were periods of dissent, often periods of disunity. And the 20th century, the China had a terrible 20th century, an absolutely terrible 20th century, with warlordism, weak republic, invasion by Japan, then the first 30 years of, of the party. This is they've had a lot of chaos and, and you know, the, the desire for stability is a very powerful desire. My argument really is that the, the um, policies in Xinjiang and Tibet are not creating stability. You know, you can't have nearly 40% of your territory under a security lockdown and call that stability. That's, that's, that's not stability. That's a fear of instability. And that the, the way forward, given what people are complaining about and demanding, is a much more sustainable and much more secure place to be. It's much better to have citizens who subscribe than citizens who are constantly looking for ways to dissent. Um, so I think that even for uh, the state security argument, uh, a modification of this policy is essential because actually it's got worse. It's got much, much worse in the last 10 years. Okay. Um, the gentleman on the left there, yeah, you? Thank you. Uh, very interesting talk indeed. Uh, very informative too. Um, yes, we need, uh, China is a rising power and we need to understand China. And uh, <clears throat> Now, the Chinese oversensitivity to, uh, to what you call, um, I mean, in the case of the Dalai Lama on one hand and the, uh, the Scottish example that you gave. Now, this insensitivity, is it simply a sign of some political immaturity or is it reflect something more deeper in Chinese mind? Over the Dalai Lama. No, no, no. I'm talking of the uh, this oversensitivity. That the oversensitivity that is it um, simply the political immaturity, or it is something more I, than that. It is something in the some reflection of, of Chinese mind. Well, I, do, I don't know that <laughs> reflection of Chinese mind is kind of a difficult question, isn't it? But but I mean, you can certainly say that the oversensitivity to the Dalai Lama is a matter of state policy and and also the result of state policy, and it's not agreed by everyone, as we've seen. Um, and it has varied over time. Uh, in the 1980s, it was, you know, he was, again, seen as, as a possible way forward rather than the enemy without. Um, there, there are a lot of discussions about who's making Tibet policy in China. Um, and one of the frustrations of people in Beijing is the uh, very hard line of uh, the administration in Tibet, the local administration. And there is a big, big vested interest there. There's a big vested interest in security forces talking up threat. Um, and that in itself, you know, defines uh, state attitudes to the Dalai Lama. You can change that. 
they can change that. You know, the Dalai Lama is an opportunity rather as well as a threat. Because if you were, I mean, there has been a policy of waiting, you know, for his death in the, uh, I think, misguided belief that this would put an end. This is, this is being, this is a trap made by your own story. If the Dalai Lama is the cause of all the trouble, remove the Dalai Lama, no more trouble. But this story, as I, I hope I've illustrated, is a false narrative. So remove the Dalai Lama and what you have is nobody to talk to. You have nobody to deliver an agreement. So, you know, the, the, the exaggerated sensitivity is, you know, it's a self-inflicted problem in my, in my view. Uh, there were real issues in, in the 80s when you think that, you know, Ch- Tibet and China had been through the Great Leap Forward and then the Cultural Revolution. It was not surprising that the Dalai Lama's delegation should be seen as, you know, the saviors from another age. But this was a tremendous shock to political authorities that had represented themselves as popular. You know, they had persuaded the center that Tibetans had signed up to, you know, the official message. And they were uh, robustly contradicted uh, by the delegations. They were also fairly robustly contradicted by the Panchen Lama. And he was in constant argument with the local administration who didn't want him to come back to Tibet at all. You know, they didn't, they, they had been instrumental in denouncing him and persecuting him. They didn't want him around, complicating their political authority. So there are a lot of factors in, in this overreaction. Um, I think it's also true that the Chinese play these things to the maximum, you know, and Western governments are rather feeble in, they get very frightened about the next contract. In fact, there is very little evidence that meeting the Dalai Lama has ever affected uh, business. Uh, one of the questions one might ask about David Cameron's trade mission is why did he go at all? Because business was fine. <laughs> it was the political relationship that was not fine. And to go on a trade mission is the wrong, is the wrong message. I hope that answered your question. Okay. Uh, just right next to him. Could you introduce yourself? I forgot to say people should introduce themselves. Yes. Uh, my name's Ian Orr, and I used to work in the Foreign Office on things to do with China. Uh, so two points as well. One was you, you talked of uh, millenarian socialism, and uh, one aspect of that, I think, was that it was, despite the words, it was a form of millenarian socialism without Chinese characteristics, or rather to oppose to many traditional Chinese characteristics. So you'll remember well the period of, you know, the, the strong anti-Confucian period. Well, in, in, China, <laughs> in China now, you get quite a lot of people whose criticism or, or who see the difficulty of modernizing China as being modernizing without properly building on what are seen as Chinese traditions in various ways. Now, going from that to your very interesting discussion of nationalities, I'm not so sure about the the way in which the perpetual stain on China's international reputation is actually going to be a driver for change. You don't see it in visits by David Cameron's or others to to China. But what about the stain that is felt by a number of Chinese intellectuals on, if you like, their internal reputation? And do you think that offers any hope for 
changes in the climate of public opinion within China about minority nationalities? Hmm, very interesting question. Um, the issue of modernizing China, what do you reach for when you modernize China? Of course, I mean, as you know very well, Confucianism was seen as the cause of failure. So it's, it's problematic to go back to Confucianism at this point. Most of the 20th century, including, as you say, in 1974, denunciations of Confucius were still very, um, still very active. So, so that's, that's tricky. There are other traditions to go back to, I think. Um, certainly, you know, modes of governance, uh, relationships with the people have something to draw on. Um, in terms of what Chinese public intellectuals or Chinese intellectuals feel about um, the situation internally, I think it varies hugely. I mean, I have met I mean, the, the most famous public intellectuals on this topic are a Han Chinese married to a Tibetan, so Wang Lishung and Wursa. And, um, and they certainly feel it very uh, profoundly. Uh, other uh, Chinese dissenters have also taken a position on the Tibet cause. I wouldn't have thought, I have not encountered, I should say, a widespread willingness to expiate any shame uh, amongst the people that I meet, uh, you, uh, which is why I was so interested in the CAS uh, report uh, and that's a judgment on policy but it's also a judgment on ethnic relations and where they've come to on ethnic relations I think 2008 and 2009 had a very profound and damaging effect and, and certainly again anecdotally in conversation with friends in, in China many of them were pretty virulent about you know the ingratitude about the the, the attacks on Han Chinese, and there would need to be an awful lot of public recantation, I think, of past policies before people could begin to understand what what had produced that, um, and therefore support a change in policy. But then you know information is scarce on this issue inside the wall. Um, so it could take time. Okay, uh, back there. Hi, my name is Ganga. Um, I'm studying at the LSE. So my question regards China's disputed claims on other territories. For example, Siachen in northern India, Arunachal Pradesh, some islands near the Philippines, which is supposed to belong to them. Yeah. Um, so China seems to be pretty non-negotiable or quite silent regarding these areas as well. And I find it quite similar to how you've kind of evolved this narrative. It's quite similar in the sense that this is our claim and, you know, that's it. So I was wondering if there is any similarity in their external position as well to the one you've explained. And how, if it is, is how is that any different? Well, they, they vary in intensity. I mean, of course, those borders are... Um, seen as part of the historic always. Uh, but some of them are pressed more uh, actively than others. Outer Mongolia, for instance, is a Chinese claim. And there hasn't been a lot of, um, uh, you know, you, you sense no official attention uh, paid to this. On the Indian claims, it's my impression that, that these are not 
actively disputed. I mean, there is a rather worrying kind of build-up of forces on either side, but, but I, I don't think, until you come to the question of big infrastructure, which is an issue, um, you know, who, who has the right to, to exploit that, these territories, that, that brings it back. As a political decision to have an argument about it, I, I don't see a lot of sign of that outside uh, the maritime stuff, which is indeed pretty worrying and pretty forward positions in a place where accidents can certainly happen. Um, Taiwan, pretty stable. Uh, you know, positions are known on both sides, and unless a uh, Taiwanese administration were to declare uh, independence, then, then we are likely to see that as, as a stable situation for a lot of uh, for a long time. I, on the question of how aggressively these com- claims are likely to be pursued, I, I uh, I would be astonished if the, if China wanted a war at this point. Uh, one, they wouldn't win, uh, depending on who they're up against, but they would have a pretty hard time. The last war they fought was against Vietnam, and they lost. Um, you know, uh, Xi Jinping has kind of taken hold of the armed forces, and is you know there is a big modernisation, but it's not just about the kit; it's about the structure and the and you know the command structure and all of those things. Can these rather autonomous units, which have been running hotels and brothels for a long time, can can they actually fight together? Uh, can they fight? Uh, it's not at all clear. Um, so, you know, the, the, the military threat is used, uh, you know, as, as a kind of in-the-background kind of threat, but I, I would be astonished uh, if, barring accidents, we got into a fight. Um, in terms of the, the kind of forward nature of the claims in the East and South China Sea, I think this is really playing with fire. Um, but again, you can see the shape of a, a deal that could be done on joint exploitation. On you know, you can see a non-antagonistic solution possible. I think that the degree to which the Chinese government successes since 1989 have trapped themselves within a nationalist narrative makes it hard to do and you need to be a very strong leader you need to be Nixon to go to China you know you need to be Deng Xiaoping uh, to reach out to the United States and maybe you need to be Xi Jinping we'll see but he's certainly not Hu Jintao and he might have the strength to to see China's real interests in other than uh, the assertion of claims of territory. Okay, any other questions um, over here? Uh, my name is Leia. I'm studying LSE here. Um, I would rather uh, start from a different perspective. Uh, I would say, uh, what's your comment to the fact, fact, maybe a fact, Fact one is that Tibet and Xinjiang has been under the, uh, at least for more, uh, several hundred years under the central government of Qing dynasty. If we calculate those years when those two parts have that kind of um, uh, special connections with the central government in Beijing. And uh, fact two is that uh, both the Dalai Lama and Banchan Lama, I think both the, both um, titles were, were authorized and confirmed by the central government since the Qing dynasty. So, so and also at the same time, um, I think the Qing dynasty appointed 
other officials in charge of administrative issues in Tibet. So basically, those two lamas, their status are as the spiritual leaders, not not the uh, supreme leader of the whole region. And also, uh, third is um, I. Um, um, I'm. I think in the uh, in your point in your PowerPoint, the photos show those uh, armed police or uh, military people on the streets. Uh, but uh, I don't think you mentioned why they were stationed there. That was because at least in 2008, that was because. Those people attacked those civilian people, those innocent people. I'm sorry if you missed my mentioning that. I think I even gave the numbers, but but, but maybe you were but, thinking of something but, else. But how would you how would you define those people? Say, if someone, if some uh, UK citizen, they suddenly they went to the UK streets, they attacked the police. Pos- Station, they attacked those innocent people and they drove them into the house and burned the house, burned them alive. Absolutely, I, so hmm? absolutely, this happened. Um, what I would say to that is, it is quite helpful to try to understand why it happened, which is what I talked about for an hour. On the on the facts, as you as you put it, of, of uh, central control over. Tibet and Xinjiang in the Qing Dynasty. Um, we can argue about this. Uh, you know, the Qing the Qing had a relationship of peace patronage with the Tibetan leaders. Uh, the Chenlong Emperor, I think it was, sent uh, a golden urn uh, to be used as a lottery in the identification of. Uh, uh, Panchen Lama, uh, Dalai Lama. Um, this was almost never used until its use was enforced in the in the identification of the of the ninth Panchen successor, uh, and that was uh, a, a use of force. But actually, this is not what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, w- w- let historians argue the history. Um, Scotland was an undisputed independent country until the 18th century when there was first a union of the crowns when the Scottish king became king of of England and Scotland and that was followed by the union of parliaments in the early 17th century. There uh, There were then two armed rebellions, one in 1715 and one in 1745. Uh, which was the last bout of active civil war in this country. So since 1745, uh, with the military conquest um, and a very brutal pacification of large parts of Scotland, uh, there's been a United Kingdom. But next year, this year, if the Scots were to vote in a referendum, they would recover their independence if they so wished. So that is, my question is, who does the state belong to? You know, you can argue with absolute clarity that Scotland has been part of the United Kingdom for more than 200 years. So what? Today is what we're talking about, and the future is what we're talking about. And who has the power to decide whether Scotland remains part of the United Kingdom? That's the point I began with. The fact is that nobody is asking for independence of Xinjiang or Tibet. The Dalai Lama abandoned that position many, many years ago. And if you look at what the, uh, if you look at the, the so-called white paper that those that the Dalai Lama's representatives produced, they're asking for meaningful autonomy within the Chinese constitution. 
So what's the problem here? It's not a problem of breaking up the Chinese state. It's a problem of the relationship between uh, minorities and the majority. And why has it become so bad? Why, after 60, 70 years, are we at this point? This is not good for China. And if we don't understand why it's happened, and that requires a hard look at behavior on both sides, then we cannot move forward. Okay, um, our time is up, so I hope you'll join me in thank you, thanking Bill Hinton. <laughs>